Good afternoon. Please take your Bibles and turn together with me to the book of James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 12 to 18. James chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. Hear now the living and abiding word of God. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. We are in James chapter 1, and we began last week, and we are working through this letter written by the half-brother of our Lord, James the Just. And we began to see in the series, and we titled the series as the wisdom for the church. James chapter 1 verse 12 is where we will pick up as we are still in the middle of answering this first question that we looked at last week. How do we respond to trials? How do you respond to trials? I know this is not easy stuff. James is a practical book of wisdom, a practical book of biblical Christianity, and it is hard-hitting. It deals with topics that are not comfortable, but are necessary in order for us to live a Christian life, in order for us to evaluate our lives on seeing if we are passing the test. And the first question James asks us is, how do you respond when you face trials, when you encounter tribulations? These trials are hard times which God has orchestrated in our lives to make us more like Christ. In order to grow us into his image, in order to display our faith and to progress our faith and to show our faith before a hurting world. So we already saw that in the first section of this chapter that we are commanded to be joyful. That is the attitude we are to have, and we did see that it is very difficult to be joyful in the midst of a trial, but we pursue it with faith. We recognize that there is an undoubted pain that we suffer. No one likes it, but however, it also says that we are to consider it joyful knowing that God has purposed this, knowing that God has planned this to reveal who we are knowing that this discipline produces righteousness in us, knowing this should inform our attitude on how we behave. So now we find joy in the end, therefore we display joy in the midst of our trials. This is the scriptural, biblical teaching on trials. And it says this about Jesus as well. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. 
So the first response we saw last week, in the midst of trials, we fight for joy, no matter how hard it is by faith. And if we lack the ability, James also encouraged us to ask God in faith for the grace to endure and to be steadfast. Now for our text this morning, is going to be about temptations. We looked at trials, and this today we'll be looking about temptations. And the mistake that we need to avoid is to take these verses 12 to 18 for our study as disconnected from the context where James has been teaching about trials. As he shifts over this idea of temptation, this passage tends to be dealt with in its own right. Okay, we dealt with trials, now James is going to deal with temptation. So we, in a sense, put the issue of trials away and try to deal with the issue of temptation. What James is concerned about is how trials and temptations interact. He, how trials become the occasion for temptation. And more narrowly, we will see how this temptation ultimately leads to unbelief and how trials become an occasion or an opportunity for unbelief. Now, have you ever seen or known a person who was bitter and angry towards God? Do you know of anyone who has been through a trial or a hardship or a difficulty in their life that has resulted in them being angry at God for what he has done? Why did you do this to me, God? Some of them might walk away from the faith altogether or some of them will leave church, or some of them will stop claiming to be Christians because they have been through a trial or hardship and they have not been able to grasp God's purpose in it and blame God for their circumstances. And it is possible that they have bought into this lie that their life is supposed to be free of difficulty and trials. A life with good health, a life with wealth and happiness. And this is rooted in this false understanding of who God is and what is the purpose for us as Christians. Now friends, you might know of someone, but let me ask you this. What is the first thing that you do when tragic circumstances happen to you? What is your tendency? To respond in angry and frustrated words? Or is it that you blame someone or God? If we are deceived in this way, we are called by James to have a divine perspective in our lives when trials come. And the main idea that we see here is to trust our God who tests us, but who never tempts us. To trust our God who tests us, but who never tempts us. And for our text, he says, we need to have a right biblical divine perspective on our temptation to sin. Now, let's face it, beloved. When, when, when the trial comes into our life, and oftentimes, we don't pass the test, do we? Think about all those times in the Old Testament and the New Testament when God tests his people. And in the midst of trials, God's people fail periodically. And we see it in our own lives how we have trials that come on and we meet them and oftentimes we find ourselves sinning in the middle of them. That is what James is going to talk about in verses 12 to 18. 
And the first point that we will see is that we have hope in our trials. Verse 12 is somewhat a transition verse. It is meant to encourage us actually and to establish us in having this heavenly perspective. That is why he says in verse 12, in order to refocus, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This verse gives the overview of the story, the entire plot of the story of our trials. James is taking us from where we are right now with the experience of our trials, and he's taking us and he's directing us. And he's directing us to a point where we will be if we indeed stand firm in the midst of our trials. So he starts with this word, blessed is the man. Sound familiar, isn't it? Blessed is the man. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount starts with several blessed statements. Blessed are the poor in the spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are poor in the spirit, and so on. And James gives his own beatitude here. It is, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials. And this blessed, this word blessed means to live in such a way so as to enjoy God's favorable approval. Blessed means to live in such a way so as to enjoy God's favorable approval. So those who are in Christ and know Christ and obey Christ are the ones that are truly blessed. But why is the person who has endured trial blessed? It is because once he has stood the test and has remained steadfast without doubting and blaming God, he will receive the crown of life. You see, the crown or the reward is life. It is eternal life. It is true, abundant life. That is the reward that we receive, which is life. And James wants us to see that it is part of the battle. It is part of the fight to keep praying for wisdom in it. And there is this help. This is encouragement in verse 12 as a reminder that it is better to trust and obey. And at the end, there is crown of life. There is that great motivation there. Again, people abuse this and take it out of context. He's not telling us to earn anything, to earn the crown of life. But often Bible does that to motivate us, to indicate to us that it is worth it. Stand firm, remain steadfast. It will be all worth it in the end. So as we cast our crowns before our Lord Jesus Christ, as we cast our desires, as we cast our agendas, our priorities, our treasures, and, we, and when we do that for him who gave himself for us, it will be all worth it. We will never regret it. That is why Samuel Rutherford, an old Puritan, said, if I had to go through seven deaths, it will still be worth it for what I will receive in heaven. It will be all worth it because it is life. It is worth it to obey because there is such a thing as eternity. Listen, if all there is is here and now, 
If there is no such thing as eternity, then what is the gain? The gain is everything that you get in this moment and enjoy everything that you can enjoy because you cannot take it with you. And so you go after all the temporal and the material and the relational pleasures you can find. You put yourself at the center of the universe. You only live a short time and you might as well get everything that you can get. And James gives a very different view of life. It is a radical worldview that there is such a thing as eternity. And God has made this amazing promise to his children that they live this steadfast life, focused life, resisting temptation, and by loving Jesus, they will receive the crown of life. Jesus knows that better than any of us, the cost of resisting, the cost of not giving in, and our salvation is attached not on our perfection in giving in to sin. If you think about the temptation that Jesus underwent, what he underwent in the wilderness, he knows better when you and I are tempted by things. He knows better than us what it is like. He didn't give in and there is, no, there is more pressure in not giving in. And this is the hope for us in the midst of our trials. This is the motivation, which is the crown of life, which we can achieve by loving God. Christ Jesus, who resisted temptation and bled on the cross for our sake. He did not give in to trials so that we can, in him, find hope and confidence to endure. And because of these reasons, we can have hope in our trials. And now we will look at our second point. The heart is the center of temptation. The heart is the center of temptation. James, as he goes on to verses 13 to 15, he reminds us that we are prone to wander, prone to doubt. In this journey to eternity, we are prone to blame. And so we need the right perspective in regard to sin in times when we find ourselves not dealing with them well. So we see in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Well, our tendency is to deal like Adam and Eve, isn't it? Adam and Eve were really blaming God. Adam starts by saying, it is the woman you gave me. That is her fault. Well, Eve starts saying that the devil made me do it. We kind of talk sometimes like that too. And you might be sitting there and thinking, well, I have never said that. I have never accused God of tempting me to sin. Uh-uh. Nope. Never. Well, maybe you have. You see, when you say, if I had a little more understanding husband, I wouldn't be so irritable. If my children were a bit more compliant and not so energetic all the time, they wouldn't get on my nerves so easily. I start off the day happy, but there is so much baggage in my family. If my neighbors weren't so hard to get along with. If my boss was not so much demanding and unreasonable all the time. If my pastors were a little bit more understanding. If only I had a good night's sleep, I wouldn't be grumpy and whiny during my day. If I only had the salary raise, I would have been a better, more generous person. If I only had a companion, a spouse to share my life with, 
I wouldn't struggle with discontentment and lust. Now you see, in all of these examples, the temptation is to look outside of ourselves and point to those kinds of circumstances. And by doing that, we are indirectly, subtly indicting God for bringing those circumstances into our lives. In a subtle way, we say, God, if only you had given me a better child, if only you had given me a better spouse, if only you had given me a better boss, if only you had given me a better work timing, then I will be the person you have called for me to be. Not just you. There are times when I blame God. We blame God for our sin. But really what we are doing, just like our first parents, is that we are blaming God. Our tendency is to blame God when we begin to go wrong in our trials. So the hard things come into our life, the death comes, the pandemic comes, and even the smaller things like parking ticket fine comes, when the job loss comes, when our child disobeys, and we find ourselves struggling in the midst of it. And we start sinning in it, really blaming God. Maybe the devil made me do it. I don't know what came upon me kind of thing. And James here is saying, no, no, no. You need the right perspective on this. This is what he says in the beginning of verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. And he goes on to talk of saying, of course, the problem is not with God. We know that, don't we? But then why do we blame him? We have forgotten and we have the wrong perspective. And he's saying the right perspective to have in trial in the difficulty and oftentimes in the midst of our trials, temptations come along with it. But it is not God who is tempting us to sin. The real problem, what James is saying, is in our hearts. God is not the one who tempts us. We saw why someone might think that. After all, God is in control of everything. And as we saw last week, that he uses even the trials and difficulties in our lives for his purposes. And so, when we are tempted, why not say, well, God must have sent this to me? Well, James says in verse 13 that God cannot be tempted with evil. That is to say that God is never enticed by anything wrong. Part of his holiness is the fact that he never wavers. He never sits there sort of wondering he should do the right thing or not. And because that's the case, God himself never tempts anyone to sin. Because he hates sin, he never provokes in other people. You can see how that is. God and sin are utterly incompatible. He won't woo you. He won't seduce you. He won't attract you to sin. That would be a violation of his very character. And so God never wants us, never lures us, never tempts us to sin. Here is the best illustration that I can think of, and I hope this will help you. I don't like seafood. You know, the good, tasty seafood? The seafood that you see in Boodle Fight 
the kingfish, the salmon, the prawns, the crabs, and the squid. So yummy for some of you. But for me, I particularly don't enjoy them. And particularly prawns, I don't like to eat. I know a lot of you love them. I know that you absolutely love them. But you know what happens to me? That doesn't sit well in my stomach. So I never eat them. And I never tempt anyone else to eat them ever. And if you put a plate of the juiciest prawns that you could ever get, or the super fresh cooked crabs in front of me, I will not be tempted at all. That is a non-issue for me. And this is the picture in a very small, imperfect way, which can be used to describe God. Just as how I hate prawns, even though they are supposedly tasty, and I'm repulsed by them, in the same way, God is towards sin. God cannot, God will not ever tempt you to sin. That this is a loving, holy, and gracious God, and he will never do that. And so, if you're feeling the temptation to sin, you can be sure that it is not coming from God. He is not in the business of tempting people to sin. He hates sin. Instead, in verse 14 and 15, James tells us where temptation do come from. They don't come from God. The real problem is at the level of our desires. The heart is the root of our temptation. In verse 14, the imagery is borrowed from fishing. Just as a fish desires for food, and so when there is a bait on a hook, and when the hook is sort of dangled out in front of it, that desire leads it to its death. It lures it out. In the same way, James is using these words of luring and dragging. Our desires entice us. Verse 14, let's look at it. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It is true for us because we quickly find out when life is rocked a little bit, what I really want was not godliness, but that of comfort. What I really wanted was ease. What I really wanted was that God just to make the problem go away. Finding out I really didn't want God in the whole situation. The problem lies at the level of my desires. In verse 14, but each person, when he is tempted, he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You know, that does not mean that devil does not tempt us. James will talk about it later, and our Lord has taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation. James is going to say, flee from temptation. But he is saying, when we get into those scenarios, let's be honest. And think about it for a moment. What is going on in our hearts? When we aren't satisfied, when we begin doubting, when we begin questioning, blaming, complaining, whining, the problem is only in our desires that come from our heart. And that is the problem. Somewhere we have lost perspective. Our desires entice us. They sort of flush us out of our hiding. They lure us and they drag us away. This is how James sees temptation working. 
we all have innate desires and when those desires come upon something then they want even if they are destructive even if it is wrong we are lured and we are dragged off that process is described in verse 15 it says then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death their desires that are pictured like a mother that are conceived our desires are activated by some object some desire in me whether it's a desire for the approval of others whether it's a craving for rest whether it's a physical lust or whether as we see in this context to come out of poverty or whether that desire is in me is activated by some circumstance or by boredom or by some other person the result is that my heart conceives sin and james says when sin is all grown up when it comes to maturity then the end result is terrible it brings forth death the problem is me that might sound strange to us but if you think for a moment it will make sense think about the way sin brings death we know from the book of genesis physical death enter into the world as a consequence of sin like the world as god created it did not include death for human beings that is one level and in another level sin has a way of dehumanizing us it is a sort of death think of someone who is controlled by their desire to become rich and successful think of someone who is rich and is given over to the riches of the world think of someone who is given over to anger think of someone who is given over to lust addicted to drugs or alcohol someone consumed by bitterness someone consumed by the concern of what others think about them think of someone whose life is marked by stubborn pride and laziness think of someone who struggles with fear and anxiety you can see how this is a kind of death working in them it robs them of life as it ought to be lived we are most human when we are worshiping and loving and working and creating and flourishing in relationships with god and others that is when we are most alive and most human you can see how sin is a kind of death and on top of it think about the deadly consequences of sin think about the way sin brings death to marriages to other relationships think about the way people ruin their health through sin think about the way people lose their jobs and ruin themselves financially because of sin it is all kind of death and think about above all how sin brings spiritual death in ephesians we see we are dead in our sin and our trespasses so it is our terrible sin problem that we are tempted by our desires and through sin we bring forth death and what god has done to our sin problem this brings to our third point the remedy to the temptation and he starts off in verse 16 do not be deceived 
This, is, this also acts as the transition verse, this great tendency to be deceived. So he's exhorting us, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. We can go through a lot of texts in the scripture and even the author of Hebrews makes it clear that our hearts are easily deceived and sin is very deceptive. Because there is a temptation to believe that God is not good. To believe that God doesn't know what is best for me. And James reminds these great truths in verses 17 to 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brother. But remember this. Every good and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights. With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of the truth, that we should be kind of first fruits of his creatures. It is the sin that is the problem, and the world says the solution, which is typically trust your heart, believe in yourself, follow your heart. Every advice that you hear in this world is going to be this. Do what you love, follow your heart, believe in yourself and change your life. You have the power to change your life. That is terrible, ungodly and evil advice that you can ever receive. Don't ever say that to anyone and don't listen to anyone who says that to you. We don't trust our hearts, we don't trust our own intentions and desires because they come from this heart that is not good. But we trust our Lord and his words. And the truth is that in the midst of your trials and your temptations, every good and every perfect gift are from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And he hasn't changed. You might think he has changed in whatever trial you are going through. It seems like God has forgotten. He has changed his stance. He has changed his will. That is why I am going through this trial. He has changed what he thinks about me. He has changed his goals for me. Has he changed? No. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. No, he never changes. Samuel Rutherford says this. Christ charges us to believe his daylight at midnight. Christ charges us to believe his daylight at midnight. Yes, things might seem dark. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. Yet, there is something else going on. The Lord is at work. And he is saying to us that God is at work. The Lord of light is at work. And that is why James says, if you look with me in verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be kind of the first fruits of his creatures. The word brought us forth has a sense of women giving birth. Remember, it was used back in verse 15 of sin conceiving and bringing forth death. Here in verse 18, God brings us forth by the word of truth. It says that he did this of his own will. 
So James here is talking about this gracious act of God giving us spiritual life. So we all have the sin and temptation problem that leads to that. And James says that God has graciously, by his own accord, brought us forth by the word of truth. He has given us new life. James started in verse 16. Now after seeing your heart is still the fountain of sin and death, you might be tempted to question your salvation. So do not be deceived, my beloved brother. But remember, God has given you a spiritual heart. God has made you alive in Christ. Now, if you are paying attention, and if you believe what James is telling you about your sin problem, that it comes from you and it leads to that, then the question you need to be asking is that, how I get to be the one of those people here in verse 18 who are brought forth by God's will? One of the people that God makes spiritually alive. Well, James tells us that there in verse 18 that it is by the word of truth. Down in verse 21, this word is able to save our souls. And the same phrase that James uses here in verse 18 is used four other times in the New Testament all by Apostle Paul. And each time that it is used, it has a reference to the saving message of the Jesus Christ what we call the good news or the gospel. That me that's the means by which God gives new life. Spiritual birth to people who are dead in their sin. Now that gospel message is this, that God in his love for us of his own will did not leave us in this state of sin and death. And so he sent his son to take upon human flesh and to live a life as a real flesh and blood man. And Jesus lived the perfect life of obedience that you and I should have lived. And he endured trials of various kinds. And he was never tempted from within himself. And when Satan tempted him, he never wavered. Jesus never earned death for himself. But in fact, he came to die so that we might live. And he took on our sins and died on the cross for our sins. And he didn't remain dead he rose again on the third day, ascended to the Father's side in heaven. And he is alive today. And he is able to save you and give you new life. So friend, if you are here this afternoon, and if you are, a, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible describes you are dead in your sin. If you will turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus, you will receive this gift of new life. So friends, if you have any questions of what that means, I will urge you to talk to someone. And for us believers, James says, we who are brought forth to life, to remember that we are kind of the first fruits of his creatures. The first and the best, choicest fruit. It doesn't seem like that. It doesn't feel like that. All of the trials and hard things and things that I'm going through, doesn't feel like that, but he's saying, no, you are the first fruits. He has already begun the new creation. The gospel has gone forth, and you are part of the harvest. And the new creation has begun in you, in me. With sinners who are saved, who believe in the gospel, we are together growing in this way. And that has already begun. You are the first fruits. So how do you respond to trials, my brother and sister? Don't think otherwise. Don't therefore conclude that God is doing something wrong or bad 
or doesn't know what he's doing. No, he's still at work. He knows what he's doing. So we trust our God who tests us and who never tempts us. So is it worth it to trust and obey? Absolutely, yes. Because there is an eternity. There is a holy and trustworthy God who has brought us forth to life. He will never tempt us. Why do we then still sin? Because there are still within you desires that are out of accord with God's will and His way and His plan. Where does all of this then lead us to? It leads us to our knees. To say once more, Father, we are people in desperate need of help. We so easily lose sight of what is important. We so quickly blame you. We so often fall into the delusion of our own righteousness. We so often feel as the center of our universe. Please help us to lean on your grace and trust that you who have begun the good work will bring it to completion. Listen to these glorious words from Apostle Paul as we conclude. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are to be seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So my friend, how do you respond to trials? Think about this question and discuss with one another. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the fact that Jesus died for our sins and he has now given us his spirit in whom we can now live by faith. Help us, Father, to not blame you or question you for our own sinful actions. But give us grace, Lord, to see our sin clearly and, and, and apply the gospel and turn to you in repentance and faith. Oh, Father, help our unbelief when we struggle to understand that you would never change and your sovereign purposes for our good and for your glory. Help us, Father, to understand these truths and live as if we are people who are saved by grace alone in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray.